This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. It's snuck up on me this year. We're in ordinary time. We come out of Christmas, we hit Epiphany. Uh, as we've mentioned before, they split out the mysteries traditionally associated with Epiphany. You have uh, the adoration of the Magi, you have the uh, the changing of the water into wine, and you have the baptism of the Lord. You've got those three mysteries traditionally celebrated with the Epiphany. So we celebrate um, on Epiphany Sunday now just the adoration of the Magi. We separate out for the following week uh, the baptism of the Lord, and then in that second week of Ordinary Time this week, the second Sunday of Ordinary Time, we have the readings for the wedding at Cana. These are those three traditional ways that that Christ is revealed. Well, a couple of years ago, Pope Francis declared a new Sunday, Sunday for the Word of God that happens on the third Sunday of Ordinary Time. And it kind of fits in that because for us, sacred scripture is that written revelation of Christ, of the Word of God. So to have this conversation about Sunday of the Word of God, we have invited uh, Dr. James Merrick, who's the director of Emmaus Academic Press and the director of clergy support at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. You can find out more about them over at stpaulcenter.com. Dr. Merrick, thanks for being with us. Uh, It's good to be with you, TL. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. I am so fond of the work of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, founded by Dr. Scott Hahn, but there are a number of other fantastic theologians that are associated with it through your journals and your books and uh, all the other resources that are available there, uh, including Dr. John Bergsma. Uh, you've had, I, I just, there's too many to name, but you can go and find out more information by going to stpaulcenter.com. Now, Emmaus Academic is one of my, if not my favorite press, uh, just fantastic resources. But as we're looking at Sunday of the Word of God today, I wanted to focus on one in particular. It's a new book by John Boyle called The Order and Division of Divine Truth, St. Thomas Aquinas as Scholastic Master of the Sacred Page. That's a big mouthful. It is. But what it what it brings to us is an understanding of how the saints read Scripture, because we tend in our society today to have almost a Reformation kind of view of Scripture, uh, and, and that's largely because of the society that we're in. Uh, either, oh, I'm Catholic, I can't read it without the magisterium, so I'm not going to read Scripture at all, or we read it in a very Enlightenment kind of way that I'm going to find the answers by going to Scripture. But the the early church, the the doctors and fathers of the church, all the way up through the medievals, read scripture very differently. So unpack for us a little, maybe using this book as a springboard, uh, how the the church fathers and doctors and the medievals read scripture, looking at the various senses of scripture, and unpack for us maybe a little bit about how that's different from the way that we see scripture approached today. Yeah, um, I'll say this about the book that we just came out with, the, the John Boyle book. Uh, it's, I mean, John Boyle is a master when it comes to understanding Thomas Aquinas's engagement with scripture. Uh, one of the things he points out in the very first chapter is when most people think of Thomas Aquinas, they think of Aquinas uh, as the great systematic theologian, right? The, the, the Aquinas of the Summa Theologiae, right? Uh, but actually, Thomas's job uh, was to comment on sacred scripture. He was a lecturer 
of the sacred page. That was his his full-time job. And these other works, his commentaries on Aristotle, his Summa Theologiae, these were all private works written for, for people outside of his classroom. His main role was to comment on sacred scripture. Um, and, and so Boyle really wants to bring that to the fore and say, this is who Thomas Aquinas was. His, his whole job was to read scripture and to lecture upon it. And um, the problem is for us moderns, as you were kind of alluding to, is that we're used to a very different way of engaging with scripture. Um, we're, we're used to really focusing on the historical meaning of the text uh, and to try to reconstruct as best we can the, the historical circumstances around the authorship of the text and the reading of the text, the audience. We spend a lot of time looking at what would this you know, word possibly mean given the way that word was used at the time and other similar contexts. Uh, what, what sort of scenario might the author have been addressing? What sort of cultural idioms or, or events might they be that have in the background to what they're saying? Those are the sorts of things that dominate uh, contemporary commentary. Aquinas' commentaries, like uh, other medieval commentaries, are very different. In fact, in one sense, they're very terse. I mean, if you were to open up Aquinas' commentary, you'd find him maybe writing a few phrases or sentences on, um, on just a couple words here and there. Uh, and so it's very difficult to actually engage with his uh, with his works. And what Boyle's done in this book is really open up how Aquinas read scripture and, and helps people make sense of these commentaries that I think initially can be very foreign and very strange to us. Um, but Boyle really shows what what Aquinas is up to and how to make sense of these uh, these commentaries. Um, one of the other things that this book does, I think, very well is talk about how for the medievals and for the early church, but, you know, of course, Boyle's focus on Thomas Aquinas, but for, for a medieval scholastic theologian like Aquinas, scripture had a rich meaning and, and rich, not just in the sense of, oh, it's profound, like it has uh, something very insightful to say to us, but rich in the sense that it was full of meaning. And so there are multiple meanings. There, you know, Aquinas is famous for having this idea of a multiple literal sense of scripture, that there could have been you know, many different literal senses that the author intended. Uh, and that indeed, uh, you don't just have one author at work. You have two. You have the human author, but ultimately the divine author. And so there's so many layers of, of meaning and richness in this text. Uh, and that's something, you know, to be sort of cherished. And that's the idea of the medieval commentary, just really cherishing the, the fullness of the truth and letting it soak in and kind of looking at it from different angles versus I think the modern uh preoccupation is to try to get boil it all down okay like it only means this this is all that it can you know and it's very restrictive very narrow and very um uh um well sort of skeptical in the sense of it it, it doesn't you know it wants to be as um careful as possible and not attribute anything uh to an to the author that we really can't be sure of and so we're often left with a very thin understanding of scripture, whereas the medieval uh, commentaries were very lush, very elaborate because of this sense of the fullness of the, of the truth that's given to us in sacred scripture. And this is so important that when we come to approach scripture, we have to start with love for the text, with an affection and an expectation that as we read these words of scripture, we're coming to meet with God. 
uh, as he reveals himself to us through the words of Scripture. When that affection is absent, uh, and in its place we see skepticism, then all of the tools that that are there for us to, to learn more about the writing of Scripture, the text and the, the history of it, uh, it can turn into something where we view Scripture merely as another text, uh, just as, as you would study the other classics. And it would be easy to treat it as if it's a dead letter, rather than recognizing it as living and active and able to touch the depths of our heart with an encounter with the Holy Spirit. And it's always easier to tear things down than it is to build things up. And so there's a sense in which, um, you know, it, it's it's much easier for us to look at all the ways in which, well, this couldn't mean that, and this couldn't do this, and we, you know, we have no evidence for this. And so we just being very, very, uh, you know, agnostic about things, it's a very careful and cautious position, which of course is in vogue today, uh, you know, to be as, uh, agnostic as possible about everything to, you know, Descartes started us down this path, path of doubting everything. Um, but uh, there's a, there's a sense in which it's very safe too. Uh, you know, f- um, if we actually have to venture out, uh, I really think this means this. And I, you know, I believe this, then we open up ourselves to criticism uh, and to, to, uh, you know, uh, scrutiny. And so it's much easier for us to, to direct that scrutiny towards the text rather than open ourselves up to it. Um, so there's a sense in which it's almost self-preservationist. But when you were talking there about the idea of a love for the text and how that must be, you know, at the heart of our engagement with scripture, I was just reminded of, of St. Augustine who wrote the manual for, um, you know, how to read the Bible, a De Doctrina Christiane. Uh, you know, this was the manual for the church on how to read this, the scriptures. And and Augustine takes as his starting point the fact that when Christ is asked, what is the greatest commandment, he responds that the greatest commandment, of course, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the second is like unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, and, on, and then Christ says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And so Augustine gets from that the idea that if we're to read scripture, we have to read it in such a way that we are promoting love of God and love of neighbor for the sake of God, right? So that that is the end of reading scripture is, is love. And I, one of the things I always used to explain to my students was, uh, you know, the idea that if, if we love, you know, we, we'd like to talk today about loving other people. Like that's a very popular thing. Oh, love everybody. And, and, you know, that can mean various things to different people, but this idea of loving everybody seems very acceptable today. But what that often doesn't mean is loving people in the past. We're often very critical of the people in the past. Oh, they were colonialists. They were imperialists. They were, you know, uh, capitalists. They were, you know, all these bad sexists, you know, patriarchal, like we're very, you know, not full of love towards the people of the past. And we kind of see ourselves as having to get beyond what they did. And I think that has also trickled into the way we read scripture. We don't love the authors of scripture. We're very skeptical. Well, I don't know. Is Matthew really telling me the truth about what happened here? Or, you know, I don't know. Some of this Old Testament stuff seems a little bogus. Like we're 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 not very loving um, when it comes to uh, our engagements with the, with the biblical authors. But if Augustine's right that we need to love our neighbor in our engagement with scripture, well, maybe that neighbor is also you know our spiritual parents 
who are the authors of scripture and we should love them and show them respect and honor and uh, and take the time to really try to understand what they were saying rather than quickly come to to criticize it and to say well this this isn't what I was expecting mm-hmm. when it, you know when it comes to the Bible well and so let's let's look at that a little um, this isn't what I was expecting uh, it seems that very often when we're approaching scripture we want scripture to be affirming. We want it to affirm our understanding, our worldview, our um, our connection to relationships around us. We want to find ourselves in Scripture uh, so that so that we can have some justification for continuing to do the things that we do. And there's a there's a certain sense of consolation in reading Scripture um, that that is inherent in the Scripture because these the words of Scripture are written as God's love letter to us. So there is a sense that we're going to find consolation in Scripture. But Scripture can also be quite challenging, and it can be challenging to the point where it looks at something that we're doing and it serves as a mirror to us uh, and through the Holy Spirit convicts us of of some sin that we're committing. Uh, or whether that be one of the big ten that we can easily point to or whether that be uh, one of the, the deadly sins that we don't like to talk about because everybody wants to point at uh, this big sin of, oh, that drug dealer over there and not the big sin of pride, which is, of course, the the, the capital of all vices. Um, so as we, as we approach Scripture with love for God, we have to allow it to not only build us up, but also to clean out those weaker areas so that we can, by the power of the Holy Spirit, be built up even further. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, there's a lot to, that we could say about that. I think, you know, a lot of times we do go to scripture looking for God to try to, to console us when perhaps the thing that we need the most is a word of rebuke, right? We, we need to find out, hey, we're not treating people in our lives well. You know, we're, you know, we're judging people that we, we you know, we have no business judging or whatever else it might be. We, we might need to, um, to, to see that in order for us to, to, you know, get over the spiritual funk that we're in. And maybe it's God just saying, Hey, everything's okay. I love you. It's wonderful. Wouldn't actually help because it would leave us in that muck of, of narcissism or whatever else. Um, I think, you know, the other, the other thing that, you know, we, we struggle with is, is um, the expectation that the Bible should more or less motivate, you know, what we take to be a good life. That, that the, really what religion does is to serve as a kind of um, uh, sort of motivation for doing the things that, that are, are, we're told to do by society or by our parents or whoever else it is. And then, of course, we go to the Bible and we find out like a very different world um, and a very different set of priorities. Um, and I think that's actually, you know, one of the ways the Bible does sort of hold up that mirror to us and say, you know, you think life is about this, but look at what life was about, you know, for your ancestors, you know, like take a look at how things were different and their priorities. Um, you know, I mean, even just things as simple as the way ancient people worshiped, you know, we tend to think of religion as a private thing, especially you know, coming in from a, you know, an American context, it's a, it's a personal thing, you know, that I have, and it's an expression of myself, 
you know, toward God. I get to, and, and that might look, you know, that, that's going to look how I want it to look. Um, whereas, you know, in the ancient world, re religion was very much a public thing and it was very objective. Um, it was very ritualistic. It had a lot of symbolism and, you know, that's, that sort of stuff is foreign to us. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, all indication is that God um, sort of values that, that approach because he, you know, he commands the Israelites to build the temple in a certain way with lots of symbolism and go through certain rituals. And, and Jesus doesn't say, you know, okay, we're doing away with that bit. He says, I've come to fulfill this, like in a sense. Uh, and he, um, you know, he, he adds layers of meaning, you know, his own death becomes a sort of Passover sacrifice that fulfills the, the Passover sacrifice. And so, um, you know, the, the, the way in which the culture of the Bible can challenge our own preconceptions is really important. Uh, and it's, it's, it's part of what it means to read scripture. Well, is to be open to that uh, challenge. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Dr. James Merrick, director of Emmaus academic press. They've got a new book, the order and division of divine truth, St. Thomas Aquinas as scholastic master of the sacred page. That's written by John F. Boyle. And you can find it by going to stpaulcenter.com. In all of this, as we're talking about, having a love for scripture first and foremost. This isn't to take away from biblical scholarship because there's things that we can glean from looking at the historical context, from the linguistic context, and yet it, we have to start with that that deep affection for scripture. Just like when we go to adoration uh, and we sit before the Blessed Sacrament, we sit there in in adoration with with great affection for the Eucharist. So too, as we approach Christ in the scripture— as he's revealed to us there, we have to approach that with that same expectation that I'm going to meet Christ in these words in some way, in some form. And I find personally one of the best ways that I can, I can achieve that is by reading Scripture with the church. Uh, and, and I do that by reading the, the patristics and the patristic commentaries or the medieval commentaries. Um, one of my favorite commentaries is uh, the the commentary put together by St. Thomas Aquinas, the golden chain, the Catina Aria, um, that, that combines various fathers of the church as a commentary on that specific passage of the Gospels. Um, as you have read Scripture with the fathers, how do you find that shaping your maybe understanding or uh, of the context of Scripture? Because you grew up outside the Catholic Church, you became Catholic later, so you have maybe a compare and contrast of the way you used to look at scripture and now the way that you're reading scripture as you read it with the church. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the most profound things, and it's something that I've, that's sort of been underscored in becoming Catholic. Um, but one of the most profound things that I experienced when I started to look at the way uh, the, the fathers in particular, the, the, the patristic fathers um, looked at scripture uh, was their sense for the unity of scripture. You know, I think um, at least when I studied biblical scholarship, and this is actually something that, I, you know, initially I came into seminary very excited about studying scripture. Um, and I had taken Greek in my undergraduate and I, you know, I was just enthralled with what that did in terms of helping me understand what's going on in scripture. And uh, so I came in, very excited. But then of course, you know, you start to learn all these various techniques for, 
for dissecting scripture in a way. And, and, and like you said, they are very helpful in certain ways, but they have limitations. And so if, if all you're doing are, you know, is limiting yourself to this one set of tools, I think it can be very uh, frustrating. And that's kind of what I experienced is I, I, it just seemed like you, you kept getting to the point where you could say, well, you know, we, we can't really say much about what Paul might've meant. It, it, it's, you know, at, at the very least it's this, and it was such a, a restricted understanding, a narrow understanding, and, and we had to be very careful. We couldn't attribute, you know, we don't know for sure what Paul might have read from the Old Testament or whatever. Only when he's quoting can we really be sure that this is what he had in the back of his mind. And so, you know, we don't know how much he knew of the other, you know, evangelists uh, and, and the Gospels. And, and so, you know, everything had to be just very limited to what he said in that letter at that time in this paragraph, you know, or whatever. And it was, it, it, there wasn't a sense of the whole. Um, and so I actually moved over from, from biblical studies to uh, systematic theology because I wanted to, to engage with the whole. What do we, you know, the, the bringing everything together. And I think that's one of the things that I discovered from uh, the, the early church's engagement. There was, you know, such a richness to the way they read the scriptures and there was such an awareness of, the whole canon and that was such an important thing is reading scripture you know with the whole and that's something that vatican ii of course emphasizes and dave verbum is is reading the, the scripture in, in terms of the whole um and i think that's a really important uh thing for getting the message and you know the early fathers uh, spent a lot of time memorizing scripture so that they could as they're reading one passage have in the back of their mind you know the you know all the rest of of, of the scriptures and they can see those connections. And that's the amazing thing about them is that they see these connections. And, uh, and, and I, th I think we've lost that ability to see the, the way in which there are allusions and, um, and, and little hints and gestures towards uh, other passages of scripture. There are a couple of ways that we can re recapture that, that sense of the unity of scripture. One of course is to go and read uh, the, the medieval and ancient commentaries, because they point out all the time, uh, oh, this was actually a foreshadowing, a type of this other event. And so they draw those connections for us. But so too, if you're just going to mass and you're hearing the readings or reading the readings ahead of time, the church draws some of those connections. Um, you're, you're hearing the, the first reading and then the, the psalm, and you're like, why did they pick that first reading for this gospel? It's because there's a connection. And if you don't immediately see it, spend some time meditating on it. Go find an ancient commentary, whether it be the Katina, whether it be something else, um, that that helps you understand what that specific connection is. Because most of the time, and I only say most because I hesitate to say all, but I think all of the time there is some illusion, some connection that, that ties those scriptures together that the church gives to us for a specific reason. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there, there are times where, you know, you are kind of slugging through a book. And so some of the connections between say the, the first reading and the, like, particularly during the weekly readings, mm -hmm. but definitely on the Sunday, um, you know, uh, you know, on Sundays, there's a much greater connection between the, the various readings and uh, yeah, I think, you know, that is something that is, you know, we are at a, at a bit of a disadvantage because we don't often engage with scripture outside of the mass. 
And if we don't do that, it's going to be very hard for us to engage with scripture inside the mass. Um, and so I think now, particularly as we are exposed to, to a greater um, uh, selection of scripture, you know, as uh, you know, in the aftermath of Vatican II, having the lectionary revised to give us uh, a greater exposure to scripture. Um, while that's very good, it also puts a greater burden on us to become more familiar so we can see those connections. Otherwise, we're probably stuck going, wait, what, what did that even mean? <laughs> you know, I don't know what's going on in that text. And then all of a sudden the gospel's coming at you and, you know, you can't really make sense of it. Well, and there, there are so many places in scripture where if we expect it to be immediately clear just because we read it, um, we're going to be frustrated because these things aren't clear to us because we don't live in that culture. Uh, a professor of Old Testament at Wheaton, uh, John Walton, once said, and I'm sure he's not the first person to said it, but he's the one I heard say it, says that Scripture was written for us, but not to us. And if we approach it thinking it was written to us and understanding our context, then we're going to miss something. So there is something to be said for listening to the Scripture more deeply and praying with it and spending time with it and maybe doing a little bit of research uh, and, and digging into what would the Corinthians have thought at this letter that Paul said, at this phrase that he said, uh, and looking into the scholarship, modern scholarship or medieval scholarship, or all the way back to the church fathers and doctors, because they're going to have something to say about what Scripture is saying to us. I think, again, it's kind of ironic, right? It's one of the ironies of our time. You know, we, we talk a lot about trying to respect other cultures, you know, particularly non-Western cultures, which of course is a good thing. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but we spend a lot of time emphasizing, you know, trying to defer to other cultures and cultural understandings and, and, you know, even, even in instances where there's a kind of clash of values. Um, and yet we don't extend that same kind of approach to the culture of scripture. We know we sort of, all oh, these ancient people, these primitive pre-scientific people, they had no idea what we know, you know about what we know now. And we just sort of write it off as sort of weird stuff that ancient people liked. And I think that, you know, that, that kind of shows a, a, a sort of duplicity in ourselves. And I think, again, it comes back to what we were talking about earlier is this idea of love. I mean, you know, if we really loved these these authors who gave us these scriptures, sometimes at great expense to themselves, uh, and certainly the church in, in trying to preserve this literature, um, often at the cost of their lives. Um, you know, we would spend time, what is going on in the ancient world? What did this mean to these people? Why did they think of all the things that they could have written down, why did they write this? You know, I mean, and ultimately we have to ask that question of, you know, why did God have them write this? You know, why does he want me to hear this? Um, and so, you know, if we approach it from that perspective, that does give us some motivation to try to understand the ancient world and to try to do some, some, some study um, so that we can grow in love for our spiritual uh, forefathers, but also ultimately for God. We're talking today with Dr. James Merrick, who's the director of Emmaus Academic Press and the director of clergy support at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. Go to stpaulcenter.com to learn more. They have a number of resources to help you engage with Scripture, including the new book, The Order and Division of Divine Truth, St. Thomas Aquinas as Scholastic Master of the Sacred Page by John Boyle. 
Come be a part of the ongoing conversation over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. We're celebrating Sunday of the word of God. How are you going to enrich your life with scripture this year? We'll be right back right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L., and we're here today talking about Sunday of the Word of God. Uh, it's the third Sunday in ordinary time, and this is the Sunday that the, the church has given us to meditate on the sacred scripture and the revelation of Jesus Christ, the Word of God, through the written Word of God, the scriptures. Um, there's a, a number of fantastic church documents that help us understand Scripture. Uh, our guest mentioned one earlier, which is De Verbum. It's an apostolic constitution uh, from Vatican II on sacred Scripture. There's also Verbum Domini, which was put out by Pope Benedict XVI. Uh, and there's all kinds of research and resources to help you interface with scripture today. One of those is a new book by Dr. John Boyle, The Order and Division of Divine Truth, St. Thomas Aquinas as Scholastic Master of the Sacred Page. It's available on Emmaus Academic Press. You can learn more by going to stpaulcenter.com. We're talking today with the director of Emmaus Academic Press, Dr. James Merrick. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having me. There's this attitude uh, that we generally have in our society uh, that marketers take advantage of, new and improved. There's this idea that mm. everything that comes after is somehow superior to what came before. And, and so, of course, because we live so much uh, further in the timeline, we obviously are, are more nuanced. We have a better capacity for thinking. We somehow uh, have a better understanding of the world. And so we can now take a look at the ancient writings and look at them as primitive. They don't really have a whole lot to offer us. And that's kind of society's view of, of any sacred text and certainly uh, sometimes our view about um, about older books, whether that be from the 1800s, oh, you know, back then and that time they didn't really, they had all this weird language. We don't have to pay attention to that. Or even further back, going back to the, the medievals and the scholastics and, and all the way back to the fathers and doctors of the church, we look at them as if they didn't quite have the sophistication and, uh, and that's, a, I think, a really big problem for us as society, something we have to overcome, because really, if we think about it, the fathers and doctors of the church, they lived in the same society that Scripture was written to. The same cultural understandings were still in play when they were writing in the 3rd, 4th, and 5th centuries as what was written in the 1st century. Um, and so we do ourselves a disservice when we dismiss the things that they have to say because it looks too far out there. When uh, Gregory of Nazianzen says, oh, you see this thing over here? Really, that's referring to this uh, completely seemingly unrelated thing. Well, he's just giving us an insight into how the early church understood Scripture, and we should take that as a gift because we are so far removed from the society to which Scripture was first written. 
There's a lot of things that we can say about about that. I mean, this attitude towards the new and our fascination with the, the new and the idea that the, the new is always better. I mean, there's so many instances in which something new is not always better. Um, and uh, it turns out that old solutions, you know, you know, actually are are better in various ways. Um, and I think, you know, when you look at the early church and the way they engage with scripture, I mean, as you mentioned, they were much more they were much closer to the time frame in which scripture was written. And so they had a lot of cultural uh, similarity that they could draw upon as they engaged with the scriptures. Um, and so, you know, for them, it might've, you know, it was, it was much more immediately obvious what was going on. Um, I think they also kind of had to work harder in a sense. I mean, for us, we don't memorize scripture like they used to. Why don't we memorize it? Because we can pull it up on our phones. We can pull it up on the, you know, the internet. We've got multiple copies of the Bible just laying around our house. So we take it for granted. So we, we're not immersed in it like they were. They were like living. I mean, if you look at some of the early um, homilies in scripture, these, these people were immersed in scripture. They knew it so incredibly well. And that's because they had to memorize it. Um, and so I think they see the connections um, much more clearly than, than we do today. Um, Listen, we, I think the, we've been, well, well, Encanto has been out for like a month and my kids know every word to every song of that movie. Right. We have the capacity, specifically when we're younger, uh, but we, even, even those of us who are no longer of that age, we have the capacity to memorize. And Psalm right. 119.11 says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you, right? There, there is a sense of, uh, when we when we take the time to memorize scripture, we give the Holy Spirit ammunition and our conscience ammunition to help us avoid sin in the future. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's you know part of the reason why Augustine said you ought to memorize scripture because you're allowing the Holy Spirit to bring then, you know, you're yeah, you're giving the Holy Spirit material to bring to your mind when you know when you're in these moments of temptation. Uh, that um I think you know, the other thing we can say is um we, we do have to wrestle with the fact that God chose to write the scriptures in an ancient world and not in the modern one. And that doesn't make a lot of sense to most of us, I think, because we think, well, why not write it now when most of the people are literate, when there's, you know, there's scientific and historical methods that, that can really scrutinize the integrity of this text and the veracity of it and so on. Like, if you really wanted to, to reveal yourself in the written word, wouldn't the modern world be the best you know, time in which to do it. Um, and yet he chose to, to do it in the ancient world. Um, and I think, you know, for, you know, there, we do have to wrestle with that. And St. Augustine said that scripture is, is written in such a way that it will, um, that will frustrate the proud, mm -hmm. but it will delight the humble. And I think that's, I mean, that's something that's really true. I mean, the things that confuse us and puzzle us, they are occasions for us either to just write it off and say, oh, pre-scientific ancient people who didn't know anything. Um, and that's a sort of loveless thing to do. Um, and, 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 and of course, that's a prideful thing as well. Oh, I, I know better. I'm smarter. I live in a more sophisticated time. Um, but if you're saying, no, I, tr I trust that God revealed himself in this time for a reason through Moses or through whoever it was, um, and there's something here, Augustine says, you know, when you approach scripture in that humility, then is when you start to see the richness um, that, that lies kind of beyond the surface. Um, 
And, and I think that's where the spirit really starts to, to minister the words of scripture to your mind and your heart. So we, we get a lot of scripture at mass. This is one of the things that uh, you talked about, um, how, why didn't, why didn't God write scripture today when we, when everyone's literate, um, there's a passage of scripture that says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This is, a, this is kind of tangentially related, but I'm of the opinion that you ought to read the scripture uh, before you go to mass. Don't pull out the missile while you're there because there's something in the hearing that affects us more so necessarily than in the reading. Now, absolutely prepare, read before, read after, read all the time, but at mass, sit and listen and receive. Yeah, I think that's right. It's just my opinion. I mean, this isn't this isn't like from on high, but <laughs> it's one of those little soapboxes that I'll jump up on every. Yeah, time. no, I think I think obviously, the scriptures are read aloud at mass um, for a reason, and you know, like it's not like everybody take out their Bible and just read this passage on your own, and then when you're done, raise your hand, and then then we'll move on after everybody's done. We'll you know we'll move on in the service. You know, there's a sense in which you know the the hearing of scripture. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that, of course, but I do think it's because there is a sense of Christ teaching through the scriptures at that moment. Christ is is teaching us as we're listening to the the words read, and so our heart should be open. Like, what is you know what is Christ trying to say to me? Like, what hits me? Um, and, and when I, when I hear something that, that kind of strikes me in a certain way, maybe I need to think about that and pray through that. So there is something about, you know, the, the hearing of scripture in that context, but I think it does, you know, it would be certainly helped if you had that familiarity with the text going in, because then you can, you can pay much more attention to what's going on. You're not just trying to figure out what's being said here, you know, et cetera, et cetera, or being distracted by somebody's mispronunciation of a name or something. You're familiar with the text. And then you can really like, you know, meditatively hear it and receive it uh, in the mass. Now, of course, that's something we can only really we can do uh, because from the vast majority of history, people, uh, you know, even if they were literate, they didn't have access to Bibles. Uh, You know, they could just go pick up and read, you know, in in their in their homes, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, as they prepared for for mass. Uh, So, you know, I mean, at the same time, I think well, we find ourselves in this place, so we should take advantage of the, of the opportunities that we're given and the, you know, and the privileges that we have rather than squander them. But uh, we, we want to be careful about, you know, making this like, well, if you're not reading the Bible before you come to Mass, then you're not really engaging in the Mass. Well, like, well, wait a second, what, what were the right. early Christians doing? No, I, to me, it's more of a you, you have the opportunity. You get to read right. before you go. Uh, and and. I think that there's some richness that you might glean specifically in our attention deprived world um, to spend a little bit more time with it. But yeah, I mean, the, the proclamation of scripture is faith generating in and of itself. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Um, so you grew, you grew up non-Catholic. You were, um, went through seminary, non-Catholic seminary. You were in ministry in the Protestant church. Uh, and then, now, of course, you became Catholic. You're working at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. What to you was the biggest mindset shift in your approach to Scripture from having been in Protestant ministry to now in Catholic? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, something I kind of mentioned earlier on 
the idea that, you know, scripture is, it's not just a historical book. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, in, in the Protestant, you know, at least in the, in the, in the Protestant world that I was accustomed to, there was an emphasis on trying to beat the historical critics at their own game. And that was the mentality. Like scripture is true. It's an errant. And the problem is that the historical critics aren't, you know, uh, you know, aren't reading it fairly. And what we need to do is show that actually, if you're really faithful to the historical critical method, you will actually see that the scriptures are true. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of the mentality in which um, I approach the scriptures is really reading them sort of purely historically. And I think, um, you know, one of the things uh, about becoming Catholic, now I, I mean, to some extent, I experienced this as an Anglican as well, because it's much more part of the Anglican tradition than the evangelical tradition that I, that I was a part of before. But um, it's certainly the case that in, in the Catholic tradition that, you know, scripture um, is seen as, a, a, a you know, a, a theological book. It is, it is written to communicate um, uh, sort of I mean, timeless truth is a, is a, I want to be careful about that language, but it is, it is, it is written to communicate metaphysical truth, not just tell us about some historical events. It's, it's the historical events uh, for a uh, sort of um, mirror for us, eternal realities. And I, that was not something that was part of um, my Protestant uh, perspective. I mean, just to give you one example the idea of the incarnation being a sort of window into the eternal generation of the son by the father. That was something we, you know, never talked about um, in, um, in my Protestant background, but, you know, seeing that, okay, what's happening in history is that God is expressing his eternal life to us in ways that we can kind of understand. We can see something of the the father's relationship to the son in this moment of the incarnation. We can see the, the spiration of the Holy spirit in the, in the event of Pentecost. Uh, We can see the, the, the eternal Trinity, the eternal Trinity being unfolded um, in history Uh, is something beautiful. And I think looking at scripture in that way, as it's sort of trying to draw us, from history to eternity is is something that is really um, a great feature of Catholic interpretation of scripture. You know, I think if I'm hearing you correctly, it's a very similar experience to what I had as I read scripture, that uh, as a Protestant, I viewed scripture as being kind of the answer book, right? You had a question about life, you go and you find the appropriate answer in scripture, uh, and there, there is this sense that all of the narratives in Scripture are factual. Not that they're true, but that they're factual. Uh, and the Catechism warns us against this. It says in paragraph 110, there's a beautiful section on Scripture from about 100 to just read until it stops. Um, paragraph 110 says, In order to discover the sacred author's intention, the reader must take into account the conditions of their time and culture, the literary genres in use at that time. Uh, as a Protestant, specifically a young uh, person in the evangelical church, I had no idea that there was a genre that should be read one way as opposed to another. I mean, yeah, we get that the Psalms are poetry, but narrative versus apocalyptic versus whatever else there is, I, I just would not have even considered. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there was, there was a lack of... Um, 
sensitivity to the various ways in which scripture expresses itself. And I think it's in part because of some historical things that were happening, you know, I mean, as, as um, increasingly skeptical uh, scripture scholarship was putting conservative Protestant theology uh, on its back foot, having to defend yeah. scripture, there was a, there was a real tendency to double down and say, no, it's all factual. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not a, you know, because I mean, that was the the sort of idea that if it's not factual, it's not true. Right. And therefore, uh, scripture, you know, we can just sort of dismiss it. Mm-hmm. I want to talk to you about this more in depth, and we just don't have the time here in the main episode. So I'm going to give everyone a sneak peek of what we're going to talk about in the Patreon segment this week. Uh, there is another new book. There's just tons from the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, stpaulcenter.com. Uh, this one in particular is The Decline and Fall of Sacred Scripture, How the Bible Became a Secular Book. I think it's really important for us to understand that kind of history of of how biblical scholarship changed from being a uh, from a group of people who had a deep love of the scripture as a sacred text to being merely a, a, a classical text that can be dissected and, and figured out like a puzzle to be solved. So let's talk about that, uh, that book and that history of it uh, in the extra segment. We've been talking today with Dr. James Merrick, who's the director of Emmaus Academic Press and the director of clergy support at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. Learn more about their work at stpaulcenter.com. Dr. Merrick, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Oh, it was great to be with you, TL. Thanks for having me on. If you missed any part of my conversation with Dr. James Merrick, or you want to go back and listen to it again, or share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at Outside the Walls or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, you can go listen to any episode you want or subscribe and never miss an episode again. As we just mentioned, each and every week, we also have an extra segment available to all of those who support the show through Patreon. We've got a great group of supporters who love the show, want to see it continue, and so we give them weekly extra segments in gratitude for their monthly gift. If you're interested in supporting the show, go over to OutsideTheWalls.com. Top right-hand corner of the page, you'll see a link that says Patreon-support-the-show. Click that link to learn more. Now... It is Sunday of the Word of God tomorrow. Let's now turn our attention to our reading from Scripture and then from church history. That's the sound of our Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read Scripture in light of church teaching, putting the magisterium at your fingertips by linking Scripture to the catechism, to fathers and doctors of the church, biblical scholarship, and so much more. Learn more at Verbum.com and pay attention to the special savings that are available during Sunday of the Word of God. Our reading from Scripture today comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. On another occasion, Jesus began to teach by the sea. A very large crowd gathered around him so that he got into a boat on the sea and sat down, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on land. And he taught them at length in parables. And in the course of his instruction, he said to them, Hear this. A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it had little soil. It sprang up at once, because the soil was not deep. And when the sun rose, it was scorched and withered for lack of roots. Some seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it produced no grain. And some seed fell on rich soil and produced fruit. It came up and grew and yielded thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. He added, 
Whoever has ears to hear ought to hear. And when he was alone, those present, along with the twelve, questioned him about the parables. He answered them, The mystery of the kingdom of God has been granted to you, but to those outside everything comes in parables, so that they may look and see but not perceive, and hear and listen but not understand, in order that they may not be converted and be forgiven. Jesus said to them, Do you not understand this parable? Then how will you understand any of the parables? The sower sows the word. These are the ones on the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear, Satan comes at once and takes away the word sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, who, when they hear the word, receive it at once with joy. But they have no roots. They last only for a time. Then, when tribulation or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Those sown among the thorns are another sort. They are the people who hear the word, but worldly anxiety, the lure of riches, and the craving for other things intrude and choke the word, and it bears no fruit. But those sown on rich soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it, and bear fruit thirty and sixty and a hundredfold. That reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, and it's the words of Christ himself in parable. And as I hear those words today, the question echoes in my mind. When I hear the word of Scripture today, what kind of soil will be present in my life to receive that? Will I be hardened to whatever the Lord would say to me through Scripture? Will I be concerned with all of the the difficulty that that scripture might ask of me? Will I be overwhelmed by the allure of other things in life, or will I be ready to hear what God would say to me? And and it's easy if we think, oh, well, of course I'm ready for consolation, but what if the words of scripture challenge us today? And so I'm challenged just in hearing this to, to pray for the grace to have good soil, to be receptive. Uh, we talked about that last week with Father Father Harrison Eyre, this, this attitude of receptivity. I pray to the God of grace that I would be receptive to hear the words of Scripture and to live out that sacramental life. Our reading from Church History today comes from a short discourse by St. Bonaventure. The source of sacred Scripture was not human research, but divine revelation. This revelation comes from the Father of Light, from whom the whole concept of fatherhood in heaven and on earth derives. From him, through Jesus Christ his Son, the Holy Spirit enters into us. Then, through the Holy Spirit, who allots and apportions his gifts to each person as he wishes, we receive the gift of faith, and through faith Christ lives in our hearts. So we come to know Christ, and this knowledge becomes the main source of a firm understanding of the truth of all sacred Scripture. It is impossible, therefore, for anyone to achieve this understanding unless he first receives the gift of faith in Christ. This faith is the foundation of the whole Bible, a lamp and a key to its understanding. As long as our earthly state keeps us from seeing the Lord, this same faith is the firm basis of all supernatural enlightenment. The light 
guiding us to it, and the doorway through which we enter upon it. What is more, the extent of our faith is the measure of the wisdom which God has given us. Thus, no one should overestimate his wisdom. Instead, he should soberly make his assessment according to the extent of the faith which God has given him. The outcome or the fruit of reading Holy Scripture is by no means negligible. It is the fullness of eternal happiness. For these are the books which tell us of eternal life, which were written not only that we might believe, but also that we might have everlasting life. When we do live that life, we shall understand fully. We shall love completely, and our desires will be totally satisfied. Then, with all our needs fulfilled, we shall truly know the love that surpasses understanding and so be filled with the fullness of God. The purpose of the Scriptures, which comes to us from God, is to lead us to this fullness according to the truths contained in those sayings of the apostles to which I have referred. In order to achieve this, we must study Holy Scripture carefully and teach it and listen to it in the same way. If we are to attain the ultimate goal of eternal happiness by the path of virtue described in the Scriptures, we have to begin at the very beginning. We must come with a pure faith to the Father of light and acknowledge Him in our hearts. We must ask Him to give us through his Son and in the Holy Spirit, a true knowledge of Jesus Christ, and along with that knowledge, a love of him. Knowing and loving him in this way, confirmed in our faith and grounded in our love, we can know the length and breadth and height and depth of his sacred scripture. Through that knowledge, we can come at last to know perfectly and love completely the most blessed Trinity whom the saints desire to know and love, and in whom all that is good and true finds its meaning and fulfillment. That reading comes from a short discourse on sacred scripture by St. Bonaventure, and he's, he's writing in the mid to late 13th century, and he's already anticipating some of these things that we talked about today and are continuing to wrestle with. And the Catechism of the Catholic Church we mentioned earlier has this whole section, beautiful section on sacred scripture. And I wanted to point out a couple of things. Uh, Section uh, 109, in sacred scripture, God speaks to man in, in a human way. To interpret scripture correctly, the reader must be attentive to what the human authors truly wanted to affirm and what God wanted to reveal to us by their words. This is historical criticism. But then further, in order to discover the sacred author's intention, the reader must take into account the conditions of their time and culture, the literary genres of that time, and the modes of feeling and speaking and narrating then current. This is textual criticism. But then that final piece that St. Bonaventure is mentioning. But since sacred scripture is inspired, there is another and no less important principle of correct interpretation, without which scripture would remain a dead letter. Sacred Scripture must be read and interpreted in the light of the same Spirit by whom it was written. This whole section of the Catechism is well worth your time uh, to to sit down and read. So I'm going to put a link to this over on our social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at Outside the Walls. And as we celebrate and mark Sunday of the Word of God, I encourage you to find some way to engage in Scripture in a new way 
this week. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to our conversation with Dr. James Merrick from the uh, from the Emmaus Academic Press. Today's show is brought to you by Eileen Herman and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com. Click that Patreon link in the top right-hand corner of the page to learn more and join their numbers. And until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.